Welcome back to our study of eschatology. This is eschatology session number 13, and we are talking today about the view of the millennium called amillennialism. So we're discussing the four major views of the millennium, and remember the key passage for the doctrine of the millennium is Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6. Let me read that passage for us again, because it's so central to what we're talking about here. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 6 says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it, and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, uh, we said before, the different millennial views have to do with how you interpret Revelation 21 to 6, this passage we just read, and um, the premillennial view, we looked at two of those, uh, two variations of that view. Um, premillennialism means that uh, before the thousand years, pre-1,000 years, Jesus will return. The postmillennial view, which we'll finish with next time, Lord willing, uh, the postmillennial view means after, post the thousand years, Jesus will return. The amillennial view is called amillennialism because it doesn't say that Jesus is going to come back before or after the millennium per se. Uh, instead, it focuses on the millennium as a present reality. And we'll talk about what that means in just a moment. But uh, before we get into that, let me just say... Um, this is the view uh, that I am most sympathetic with, um, but don't hold. So the view that I'm closest to, or that I um, hold, I suppose, is the historic premillennial view. And I talked about that when we covered that view. Um, but the view that if I couldn't hold premillennialism, uh, the view that I'm next closest to is amillennialism. But there are just some things it's hard for me to to get over um, and, and explain, but um, there are some things that are very compelling biblically about the amillennial view. Uh, one of my uh, favorite scholars to read, uh, I've heard was an amillennialist until he preached through the book of Revelation and then he became a premillennialist. Um, one of my favorite uh, pastors is a Amillennialist. I have um, at least a friend or two uh, that I'm close to who are hold the amillennial view. So um, this view may be unfamiliar to you. If most of what you've heard is the 
uh, a version of the of the premillennial view, whether historic or dispensational premillennialism. Um, but this is a view that has a long history. Um, it is a view that has some very compelling biblical arguments. Um, and so I want to show you uh, what some of those are. And then just like with the other views, I'll show you uh, what some of the arguments against this view are, some of the weaknesses of this view. So here are the fundamentals of amillennialism. Number one, the millennium is now. The thousand years that John speaks of in Revelation 20 uh, stands for the entire period between the first and second comings of Christ. So it's not a literal thousand year period, it's just a big number to represent the whole period of time between the first coming of Christ in his incarnation and the second coming of Christ at his return. Number two, the millennial reign of Christ happens in heaven rather than on earth. So the premillennial view holds that the reign of Christ happens on the earth, but the millennial view says this thousand-year reign of Christ is actually happening in heaven. It's Christ reigning from his heavenly throne. Uh, number three uh, is that uh, Satan then is bound right now. Remember, one of the key events of Revelation chapter 20 is that uh, verse 2 says uh, he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So during this thousand year period, Satan is bound. And it's, verse 3 says they threw him into a, he threw him into a pit. Uh, and or the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. So during this thousand year period, Satan is bound and unable to deceive the nations any longer. Now, um, in the premillennial view, um, that means one thing, right? That's interpreted one way. And in the amillennial view, that's interpreted another way. Um, this, I think, is one of the most compelling parts of the amillennial view, especially when you think about the fact that the author of the book of Revelation uh, most hold, and there's some disagreement about this, but most hold that the author of the book of Revelation is John, the same John who wrote the Gospel of John. And whenever we're interpreting books of the Bible, it's uh, important to study the context, the surrounding verses, right? If we're looking at a particular verse, you want to look at the paragraph around it, the chapter around it, the whole book, and then the next step, once you've tried to understand it inside of the whole book, is to understand it inside of all of the writings by that same author. So, for example, if you're trying to understand something that Paul says in Romans, once you studied the whole, looked at the whole book of Romans to try to help you understand that verse or that idea, the next place to go is not 1 Peter. The next place to go is the other letters that Paul wrote. So if we're struggling to understand something that John says in Revelation, and we've tried to understand it in the context of the book of Revelation, one of the next places we should go is the Gospel of John or the letter of 1 John, because those are written by the same author, and we would expect them to have similar ideas expressed in similar ways that will help us understand things he said other places. So if 
John is talking about Satan being bound here in Revelation 20 for a thousand years so that he can't deceive the nations. Does he say anything like that in the Gospel of John that might help us understand it? Well, um, he does. In John chapter 12, there's this... um, this scene, this series of things that unfolds in John chapter 12, right before Jesus goes to the cross. So John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, all happens the night before Jesus is crucified. So John 12 is very near to the crucifixion of Jesus. And what happens there in John chapter 12, this is the second half of the chapter, roughly, there are some Greeks, some Gentiles, some people from the nations, in other words, who come seeking Jesus, seeking an introduction to Jesus. They want to meet him. And shortly after these Gentiles, these people from the nations, seek Jesus, uh, Jesus says, now is the ruler of this world cast out. Talking about Satan. So Satan is going to be cast out as these Gentiles right, are coming to seek Jesus and Jesus is about to go to the cross and die. So in the amillennial view, Satan has been bound upon the death and resurrection of Jesus and remains bound until Jesus returns. And during this period of time, the gospel is spreading to the nations, to the Gentiles, because Satan is no longer able to deceive the nations and keep them bound in idolatry. Uh, so um, that's the, the all-millennial understanding of the binding of Satan. And we, we see evidence this, of this not only in the Gospel of John, but also, for example, in Mark 3.27, when Jesus is being accused of um, being, there's blasphemy going on. They're accusing Satan or Jesus of, of um, casting out Satan uh, by the prince of demons or casting out demons by the prince of demons. And that's, of course, Uh, blasphemous because Jesus is not operating by the power of Satan. He's operating uh, by the power of God. He's God in the flesh. But one of the things Jesus says there about his work in casting out demons is he says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So that seems to say that one of the things that Jesus is doing in coming to the earth and um, casting out demons is he is binding Satan. He's binding the strong man so that he might plunder his house. In other words, so that he might um, take his goods, redeem the people who have been um, you know, under Satan's influence and uh, redeem them for himself. So you make a really compelling case for the binding of Satan being something that is all has already taken place at the death and resurrection of Jesus, and that is still taking place, and that's why the gospel is able to advance all around the world like it is right now, exploding in the Middle East and in China and other places. All right, the fourth um, essential piece of the amillennial view is that the first resurrection mentioned in Revelation 20 verses 4 and 5 is a spiritual resurrection and not a bodily resurrection. Right, so, And that would either be a resurrection from spiritual death to spiritual life at the moment of conversion 
or it would be uh, describing the spirit of a believer entering into the presence of God upon their physical death. One of those two would be what that resurrection is referring to. So either they... um, come to life and reign with Christ upon their conversion, or they come to life and reign with Christ upon their physical death when their spirit goes into the presence of God. Uh, and then fifth, and finally, uh, about the amillennial view, is that the return of Christ, the resurrection of both believers and unbelievers, that is bodily resurrection, of believers and unbelievers, and the final judgment will happen all together without the interruption, so to speak, of a thousand-year earthly kingdom. Remember we talked about before that most other passages in the Bible that talk about the return of Christ and the resurrection and so forth don't seem to make any mention of an intervening millennium between the return of Christ, the resurrection, and then what we know comes next, the judgment, and then the new heavens and the new earth. So that's the case for amillennialism, at least a a basic case for amillennialism. There's more that could be said, but um, that's enough for us for now. So now let's look briefly at some arguments against amillennialism. I've done this with all of the views, right? I want to show the weaknesses of the view as well. Um, And so here's the first one. The first weakness of this view is that Revelation 19 and 20 and 21, if you just sit down and read them, and I encourage you to do that, if you just sit down and read Revelation 19 and 20 and 21 together, it seems to read like a sequence of events. That Jesus returns in chapter 19, that the millennium takes place in chapter 20, the first half, and then the second half uh, tells us of the final judgment. And then chapter 21 of the new heavens and the new earth. That seems like a sequence of events that Revelation is describing. But according to the amillennial view, Revelation 21 through 6 is, does not fit into a sequence preceded by the return of Christ and followed by the final judgment. Instead, the millennium is taking place right now and began with the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, number two, uh, is the language of Satan being bound in Revelation chapter 20 uh, seems to communicate not merely a limiting of influence, but a total removal of influence. Right? He is not only bound, but also thrown into a pit which is shut and sealed in the first several verses of chapter 20, uh, presumably sealed with that key and great chain it talks about. So how does this language accord with or fit with what Peter warns believers about um, in 1 Peter 5.8 when he says the devil is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone he, he may devour? Or how does it fit with what Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians 4 when he describes um, how uh, the, that the God of this age blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. So I, I said that the amillennial understanding of the binding of Satan is pretty compelling, especially when you pair it with the gospel of John. But at the same time, there's some significant weaknesses in that view because... Again, the Bible still warns us to be on the lookout for Satan. The Bible still indicates that Satan is blinding the minds of unbelievers, and that's why they don't respond positively to the gospel. And so, um, is Satan really bound right now so that he can no longer deceive the nations? Depends on how you look at it, right? Depends on how you interpret it. Uh, You could say that... um, 
the fact that so many are turning to the gospel um, is evidence that Satan is bound, or you could say the fact that there are so many who have not turned to the gospel is evidence that Satan must not yet be bound. It's a difficult question, right? Um, and then third and finally, um, in regard to the resurrection, right? So I said that uh, in the all view, the first resurrection mentioned in Revelation 24 and 5 has to be a spiritual resurrection. But here's the problem with that. When it says in verse 4, uh, I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded and so on, and then it says they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. When it says they came to life, it's possible for the word used there to refer to um, the, the transition from spiritual death to spiritual life, right? So that, that's a, a, a way that that word can be used um, in the New Testament, not just in this spot, but elsewhere. So that's a possibility. However, in verse 5, when it says the rest of the dead did not come to life, until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. That word used there for resurrection, there's no clear example anywhere in the New Testament that I have found that um, where that word is used for anything other than a physical bodily resurrection. So if that's the case, that's a significant argument against uh, being able to say that this is a spiritual resurrection that's being talked about here in these verses. Now, um, I've been helped in, in this lesson from um, you know, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, uh, the notes that you can also find in the ESV Study Bible, uh, the four reviews of the Millennium Book that I've mentioned before. Um, and also, I'll add for this one, um, there was a, a videoed panel discussion called An Evening of Eschatology with uh, Jim Hamilton and Doug Wilson and John Piper and Sam Storms and uh, maybe one other, I can't remember. Um, it's a long video, they discuss a lot of things, it's really, really helpful. And uh, some of the things that I've discussed about amillennialism, um, I know I, I heard in that video, perhaps learned in that video initially. Um, so there's some really helpful things there as well. So that concludes our study of amillennialism. Next time, Lord willing, we will discuss postmillennialism, and that will bring our study of eschatology to a close. See you next time, Lord willing. Amen.